Please turn in your Bibles at this time back to Mark 14, Mark chapter 14. Last week, or last time I was up here, I should say, we uh, considered Christ in the garden, and I think Pastor Greco may have passed, uh, preached from a similar passage this morning, <clears throat> and we're moving on now to uh, pick up in verse 43. Please hear, listen, give careful attention to the reading of God's Word, Mark 14, beginning with verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, meaning Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out? Said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we desire to hear from you in and through your word. Holy Spirit, you have inspired your word. It is God's words. And so, Lord, we need God's words in our heart and in our lives. So, Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace, that you would illuminate your word to us this evening. And we pray, O oh God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here for these next few moments, Lord, especially that the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We've seen here... Um, in the previous passage, Christ in the garden. And we spoke of Christ's agony there. And here we're led forward to his arrest in this passage. Previously, he had had his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, with them. He had told them to watch and pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. But here we see that, that in Christ's dark hour... Not only did they fall asleep, but they completely forsook him and fled. And as we look at this text, I want us to focus on four key elements of this account. I, I know a pastor is supposed to have three points, but somehow when I, when I sit down to, to, to look at a passage, I keep ending up with four. So forgive me if you will. We've got four points. And, and they're really broad themes to, to kind of consider as we look at this text. The first one is betrayal. Certainly, we, that is seen here in Judas and, and, the, and the awful act that he did in betraying our Lord. The second is violence, and that's very evident as, as these, this crowd, this mob comes with swords and clubs to capture Jesus. We also see desertion that everyone left our Lord. And finally, 
we see shame. Betrayal. Jesus has already spoken in previous verses, really at the end of that previous text. He says, rise, let us be going. The betrayer's at hand. And then Mark, in his customary uh, way, moves the story along with that word immediately. He says, immediately, he was, while he was still speaking, Judas came with a crowd. So here he is, and, and Mark tells us, as, as if we don't know, but he tells us that he is one of the twelve. But I, I think it's important that we pause for a minute and we think about who Judas was and what he had seen and what he had heard. Because this was Judas who had walked with Jesus and heard his teaching and saw his miracles, just like Peter, James, and John. This is Judas who only a few hours earlier had sat at supper with Jesus. This is a man who had enjoyed some of the closest fellowship with Christ while he was upon this earth. This was the man that they entrusted with the money bag. Unfortunately, he proved not to be trustworthy in that. But he was the one that carried the bag of, of money that kind of provided for Christ's ministry as they were out and about and traveling. However, since Judas has left the supper, he's gone and arranged this mob that now comes to capture Jesus. We were told in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14 that Judas had gone to the leaders of the Jews and offered Jesus to them. His heart had turned against Jesus, likely many days or weeks before these events that we've just read about. And this mob comes by night, probably with torches as well as swords and clubs, but they need to make sure they get the right person. They need to make sure that they get Jesus because we don't really know if the scribes and the, and the members of the Sanhedrin were with them. I, I kind of picture that maybe they were following at a safe distance. And yet they, they worked up this crowd to come and do their bidding because it says, our text says, that um, they came from the scribes, um, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders there in chapter four, or in verse 43. So they came and they needed somehow to identify Jesus. And Judas gives them the sign. He says, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Then Judas does, just as he has said, he greets Christ with a kiss. A kiss was a common part of, uh, a common greeting of that day. And as it as it is in cultures even still today, or at least was pre-COVID. Um, however, the Greek here seems, the, the, the original language seems to point to more than just a, a peck, a polite peck on the cheek. It, it seems to point to a long, lingering kiss. And it's, it's probably in Judas's mind, he wanted to make very sure that he was marking Jesus out, saying, yes, this is the one. In case... Under the cover of darkness, somehow there was a mistake. Judas wants his money, and he wants to leave no doubt who Jesus is. However, the sad irony is that this kiss, a gentle form of affection, respect, and greeting, is the wicked sign used to identify and arrest our Lord. And not only does he kiss him, he addresses him as rabbi or teacher that in itself was a term of honor and respect because that was appropriate because that's who Jesus was. He was the teacher. He was the one that, that led this little band of disciples. He was a rabbi. 
that term conveyed honor and respect. And, and the two things, that, that greeting and that kiss, two things that should convey enormous respect, esteem and honor and love are instead an act of hypocrisy, in a sense, hypocrisy with a vengeance. And what deception we see here in Judas, because his name, think about it, his name has been associated now with treachery and trickery for 2,000 years because of what we have just read. Satan put it in his heart to betray Christ, but he didn't become the betrayer overnight. He seemed to always be tempted by money. John tells us, as we've already alluded to, the fact that, that he was duplicitous in, in his dealings and in his thinkings, and especially in the account of the woman who came to anoint Jesus. And he said that, you know, look, this expensive ointment was poured out on Jesus. That could have been sold. That could have been given to the poor. And all the while, we're told that, that he's lining his own pockets out of that bag of, of money that he carried. He was a dishonest treasure, and his appearance of piety was likely a desire to line his own pockets. And now the secret thief has become the open betrayer of our Lord. This betrayal is mentioned, interestingly, each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which is quoted, probably was quoted this morning, and we, we, we speak and we use those words of institution on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And it's, it's pointing to the fact that this was the night of his betrayal. We often skim over the deceit that marked this night. Because, but the night in which Jesus took the cup was the night he was betrayed by one that should have been close to him. He was betrayed into the hands of sinful men who delivered him up to be crucified. And this is the last time that Mark mentions Judas in his gospel. We know from other accounts from Matthew that Judas regretted his choice and tried to return the 30 pieces of silver that had been given to him. We read on in the book of Acts. We read about his gruesome suicide and the terrible end that Judas met. Judas had followed Christ for many months and for many miles. He followed him physically but never spiritually. He had a knowledge of Christ, but he was never known of him. As one commentator has written about Judas, the highest title for Christ was rabbi, never Lord. He lives on the stage of scripture as an awful warning to the uncommitted follower of Christ who is in his company, but does not share his spirit, end of quote. What a sobering warning this is for us today Judas was in some ways like those that Christ warned his disciples about in, in Mark 4, about the seed that falls on thorny ground. There seemed to be an appearance of growth among those that Jesus taught about. Yet there are other things that choke out the apparent life that was once there. Judas, of course, met a miserable end. He forsook the Lord. He betrayed the Lord. Second major theme that we want to consider here is that, that of violence. We certainly see that in the crowds that came at Jesus. There's really two violent parties in this account. The, the mob with their swords and clubs and also Peter, who is quick to draw the sword. He's not named in Mark's gospel, but John tells us who it is, that it's Peter. But both of these groups show a misunderstanding 
of the situation. The mob comes to arrest Jesus. They're, 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 they're carrying these weapons of warfare. It probably included some Roman soldiers because the Roman soldiers were never far away. Because especially during Passover week, I'm sure those, those men were putting in lots of overtime that week. They were probably working dawn till way past dusk to make sure that the lid was kept on any uprising that might come along. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily they were the violent ones in this crowd, but they were very likely there. The men of the Sanhedrin, we have already seen that they wanted to arrest Jesus, and here they get their wish. But what does Jesus reply to them? He says, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He, he says, look, I was right here with you. I taught in the temple. And just, just hours, days before this, he had been right there teaching in the temple. And here they come out like they're, like they're, they're, they're trying to get a bandit that's holed up in a house or an apartment. It's, it's ridiculous in a sense. They come armed to the teeth. To capture Jesus who was openly teaching in the temple. This is Jesus who took children in his arms. They came with violence not fitting for the situation. It, it's almost like sending a SWAT team to arrest Mr. Rogers for jaywalking. Not that Mr. Rogers is necessarily like Christ. But, but it, it's ridiculous the show of force that they came with. And, and it's, it's almost, you, you wonder if, if there was some guilt within them as they came to arrest our Lord. The Jewish leaders probably stirred them up to make sure that they did the deed that they asked him to do. They completely misunderstood who they came to arrest. They came with force and anger to arrest the one who came to love and to serve. But they were not the only ones that came with violence. Peter resorted to violence very quickly. Over and over, the disciples have proven to misunderstood Jesus' mission. They assume and likely desire for his mission to be political. They, among with many of their contemporaries, wanted to take up arms against the Romans... Or that thought was probably always nagging in their mind. Not that they necessarily wanted to be the leaders of such an insurrection. But that was always seemed to be stirring in the minds of people of that day. Luke records that when this mob came, that one of the disciples asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And evidently Peter didn't wait for an answer because his sword was already out and swinging. And, and as one preacher said... Either he was a really good shot or he was a really bad shot. Maybe he aimed for the ear and got the ear, or he aimed for the head and the guy ducked and he missed the head and got the ear. But either way, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, was missing an ear. And Luke, the physician, tells us that Jesus healed his ear or his wound at that time. But Matthew tells us, and, and again, it, it may seem like I'm skipping around, but Mark is so abbreviated in his treatment of this. It's, it's helpful, I think, if we look for a fuller picture at kind of a harmony of all the Gospels' accounts of this. But Matthew tells us that Jesus reproved Peter, saying, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 
Jesus is saying, this is what is prophesied to happen. It's got to be this way. Now we can look at Peter and think, there he goes again. Peter always popping off and always ready to take up arms against his enemies. But how often are we like that? How often does our frustration against even the modern political machine tempt us to resort to disrespect, hatred, or even violence against those with different views or maybe with different political parties? How often do we think that our agenda is God's agenda just because we feel it so strongly without giving it careful scrutiny against God's word? Second Corinthians tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of the earth, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are part of a spiritual kingdom, saints of God. Peter's mistake, his sin, was that he misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. He wanted to take the cause into his own hands, failing to recognize Christ's infinite power. And that Jesus was really offering himself willingly in this moment. Christ's death was a voluntary sacrifice. He did it willingly for you and for me. That brings us to our third point, that of desertion. Well, certainly that is a theme that is here. Verse 50 says that they all left him and fled. And we can talk about Judas and what he did was important for us to consider. We can talk about Peter. We can talk about this strange thing, this, this strange account here in the last two verses of this young man that ran away naked. But really, this is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is left here all along, all alone. He has been alone in the garden. He actually sought solitude so that he might pray to his father as he wrestled through the agony that he was facing as he faced the, 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 the horrible prospect of bearing our sin. But here he is forsaken and left alone. The troops come for him, and, and although Peter initially resisted, he didn't stick around after that first angry outburst. He, along with all the other disciples, leave our Lord, and Christ is left alone in really what is his time of greatest need. Yet everything, everything is happening according to a divine plan. And I mentioned this in, in the previous text as we thought about this. You read the accounts of, the, of, of the, this week of Passion Week leading up to Christ's crucifixion and death and, and resurrection. And, and it's all according to a divine plan. It's a plan that was decided in eternity past. And as we said last week, it, it will all go according to God's design. These men on this night were doing what God's hand and counsel had determined before to be done, as it says in Acts 4, 28. Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. We know that those scriptures were fulfilled as he marched forward to his death. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He is the author of scripture. He is God giving himself for our sins and and again, if we look at one of the other gospel accounts, if we look at, at the, the account from the, from the gospel of John, we see that Jesus asked this mob, he says, who are you seeking? Who, who are you after? And they said they were um, after Jesus of Nazareth. 
And what did Jesus say? He said, I am he. And he uses that phrase, I am, which is the covenant name of God, that was, which God gave to Moses to tell them who sent him. And when he did that, the crowd fell back and fell on the ground. We see Christ's power in that moment. And despite the power that he had, he willingly gave himself in that moment. Everything is happening according to God's design and plan. J.C. Ryle has said this about God's superintendence of this and his guidance of all things. He says, the wickedness of worldly men and the inconsistency of believers may often afflict our souls. But there is a hand above us moving the vast machine of this universe and making all things work together for his glory. Kings of the earth may take counsel together and the rulers of the nations may set themselves against Christ. But the resurrection morning shall prove that even in the darkest times, all things were being done according to the will of God. That should comfort our hearts as we think about Christ facing his death. And yet he did it willingly for us. Finally, we want to consider briefly this idea of shame. And we do that by looking at these final two verses. And, and what a strange, uh, in a sense, thing to, to, to tack on to this message. And I don't want to just ignore these verses, but here we're told that, that there's this young man seemingly lurking in the shadows on this dark night, and he's only clothed in a linen cloth. And they try to catch him, perhaps thinking he's one of Christ's disciples, and he slips away, but only by leaving his clothes, the cloth that he's wrapped in, behind. And... I have to wonder how many Bible studies have, have been hijacked by wondering who this man is and why this is included here. I don't pretend to know everything about it. One commentator that I read offered 13, that's right, 13 different options of who this might have been. Because Mark doesn't tell us who it is. We don't know. Many people think it's, it's Mark himself and he's just talking about it. And, and they point to, to various things. They say, it's likely his home was nearby. Uh, perhaps Jesus even celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples in the home of Mark. It's thought that, that he was, his family was one of, of, of certain means and influence. And, um, so, and, and the fact that it was a linen cloth speaks to some degree of wealth. You know, there's all kinds of, of, of things we could look at. The point is, is we don't know. We don't know who it is. And... I think, but we have to slow down and think about why it's here. And, and, and there's two reasons that I want to offer to you. One is that, that the desertion of Christ and the, and, and the fact that everyone forsake him was complete. Even this unnamed youth that maybe was only following out of curiosity, he too left the Lord. Jesus was completely alone in that moment. And the second is this idea of shame. And, and R.C. Sproul gives this a considerable treatment in his commentary. And he says that the very first self-awareness of guilt and shame was an uncomfortable awareness of nudity. And you think about Adam and Eve in the garden enjoying this perfect paradise that God provided for them. And then they sinned. They fell. And God didn't necessarily tell them to clothe themselves, but yet they felt shame at their nakedness. 
They felt shame in that moment. Often the Old Testament prophets speak of Israel's sin and speak in these terms of nakedness and shame. God spoke of exposing their nakedness and shaming them because of their sin. God spoke through the prophet Amos about his coming judgment upon the people. And he says that the most courageous men of might shall flee naked on that day. As we think about this concept, we have to recognize that our own righteousness is considered as filthy rags. They're insufficient to cover us. That we in ourselves can do nothing to hide the shame of our guilt and our sin. The only way that we can stand before God without condemnation is if we are wearing the covering, the clothing of Christ's perfect righteousness. As the hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And not to make too much of this young man, but the fact that he fled without his clothes should help us recognize the shame of our sin. But not only that, we must consider that what Jesus did, what he was preparing in this text, in this moment to do, was to bear the penalty of our shame and our sin. Our sin can now be covered by his blood. And our shame and nakedness can be covered by his righteousness. Once again, we come to the end of a, a sober account of the events of Passion Week. And I think it's, it's important and appropriate to, to be sober in these moments. It's important that we reflect upon the fact that it, it was our sin that put Christ upon the cross. We're going to have a Good Friday service, and when we think even more particularly about these things. But we need to remember what Christ did and why he did it. Well, he did it for us. He did it so that we could be made right with God, so that we could wear that perfect clothing of Christ's righteousness. But we so often are like the disciples. We misunderstand his kingdom, and we unfortunately, are sometimes willing to desert the cause of Christ. Sometimes we're like the young man who flees in shame. We draw into ourselves and we fail to draw near to God as he invites us to. And so often, even when we try to reflect upon our own sin, we, we just kind of get hung up there. We get hung up right in our own sin because I would imagine if, if most of you are being believers, recognize that you sin, that you fail, and yet we so often fail to look to Christ, our victor, the one who conquered sin, the one who paid the penalty for every one of our sins. And that is never a license, as Paul uh, admonishes us in, in um, Romans 6, it's never a license to sin. We should never sin that grace may abound, yet we have to recognize that Christ paid the penalty for every one of our sins, every sin of his children, and we can take refuge in him. Christ died, and in his death, he fully 
accomplished salvation for his people. Our salvation is complete in him. And if you don't know him as your savior this evening, I invite you to come to Christ and trust in him fully and completely. Rest in him and receive his salvation today. Let us pray.